like the idea of wanting to to tear someone's clothes off, I was like, right, that's that's just complete bullshit. That's for for effect. And someone's like, no, 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 that's that's a thing. And I was like, what? <laughs> Hang on, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, because my experiences are so different. My name is Dane, and I'm a queer woman living on Wadarung country. I work as the Regional Community Engagement Coordinator for Midsummer, and I'm very proud to be part of the team who brought Pride Finder to life. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the lands on which this podcast episode was recorded, the Wadarung and Jarjawarung lands of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to Elders past and present. I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you live, work and play today, and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. We recognise the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Always was, always will be. The episode you're about to hear is with Annabelle, a regional healthcare worker who is passionate about creating spaces for the quiet queers. She is a wonderful advocate for the asexual community, which can often be overlooked amidst the rest of the rainbow. She speaks very eloquently about her experiences and has a great deal of wisdom to share. In this episode, Annabelle also discusses her experiences with medical conversion therapy. This can be hard to listen to at times, so if you find this triggering... Maybe skip to the next episode or seek support from a loved one or a helpline listed in the episode description. I'm very thankful that Annabelle was brave enough to share her story with us, as it really taught me quite a lot, and I hope you'll find it as enlightening as I did. Let's get to know Annabelle. My name's Annabelle. Uh, I use the pronouns she and her, and I'm bi-romantic asexual um, and that's something I discovered when I was 28 um, and I'm now 34. People who are asexual rarely or never experience sexual attraction so the way that I often describe that to people who haven't ever had to separate out the different types of attractions that they experience is that Lust is something that is completely anathema to me. I don't understand it. I don't really understand how someone can look at another person and have sexual thoughts about them or be turned on by someone they don't know. And so for me, the types of attraction I experience often aesthetic attraction, where I really I like the look of someone, uh, intellectual attraction where I'm drawn to them and the things that they're saying and they really excite me and I want to know more and I want to spend time around this person. Yeah, for me there's also romantic attraction. So there's people who I want to develop a bond with, I want to have that emotional intimacy with them, I want to build a life with them. Quite often with that one, like I will look at someone and I'll be like, I can see a spot for myself inside their arms, like just there's a me-shaped hole in there. And, yeah, I kind of got to 28 thinking that the way in which people talk about other people was mostly hyperbole. So I I looked at movies and I thought, right, so this is just like creative, yeah, this is like creative inflation, that like the idea of wanting to, to tear someone's clothes off, I was like, right, that's that's just 
complete bullshit. That's that's for for effect. And someone's like, no, 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 that's that's a thing. And I was like, what? <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, because my experiences are so different. And I got really lucky that I fell into an online fandom, the Shadowhunters TV show, which drew in a huge amount of queer people. And it was the first time I'd ever really met queer people who weren't just a lesbian or a gay man who were significantly older than me or had had a really different experience of always knowing who they were. And so I kind of, yeah, 28 stumbled in and was like, right, I want these people to have good lives. Why am I so invested in this? And for me, it then became this thing of, well, oh, crap, I think I've got a place in this. Um, When I was introduced to the term asexual, it was a huge relief for me because I was like, ah, oh, yes, that that feels like a fit. And explained a whole lot of my backstory as well. So I could kind of look back at my history and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For me, like the the appeal of romantic relationships was that emotional intimacy and, and that bond. And I'd had a few times where people have been like, well, but the difference between a girlfriend and a friend is whether or not you're having sex with them. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> because to me that, that didn't make any sense. So for me, having language was just incredibly freeing and really, yeah, just sort of deeply uh, affirming to know that yeah I didn't I didn't have to try and make my own way around this there's already language for it um, I hear a lot of, of queer people who are like I knew from a really young age because I felt that attraction to people I knew I had that attraction and I either hit it or I I acted on it or I, but not experiencing it makes it really confusing because you kind of stumble along going well are they all making it up <laughs> um am i making it up and that that does mean that there's a lot of ace people who come out in their 30s 40s 50s because they've never seen a place for themselves in the queer community but they've always kind of known that they didn't quite fit either I'm a little bit unusual in that I've had two very separate experiences of medical conversion therapy that both relate to my sexuality, but yeah, had really different impacts on my life. Um, So I got to 25 without having ever been sexually active. And as a woman, they often recommend that you have a pap smear as soon as you become sexually active. And they start asking about it sort of often 16, 18. And so I'd kind of got to 21 and, and had these doctors been like, oh, look, we'll leave, we'll leave a little bit. It, oh, I feel like you should have one. Got to 25 and they're like, oh, crap, you, you have to have one now. And I was like, it doesn't make any sense. Like the, the point of that scan is, is around viral infection. I haven't put anything in there that, that could carry a virus. It's really unlikely. And 
fortunately, I was with a doctor who believed that, but he also just didn't know what to do with that because he hadn't come across it. So he was like, you know what, we're just, just going to do one anyway. One of the challenges if you are ace and you are sex repulsed is that penetration can be an incredibly horrifying experience. And so a pap smear, which can be nasty anyway, I also then experienced on top of that a revulsion experience. Um, and they got the speculum stuck and could not get it out because I just sort of locked up and was so revolted by everything. And so they then had to go way in front and find another doctor to try and help get it out. It was, it was a whole thing. But that meant that I got to refer to, refer to a gynecologist. And the gynecologist diagnosed me with a vaginal pain syndrome, vulvodynia, um, and also vaginal spasms. And what was incredibly bizarre about this was that they decided and then, then told me extensively that the reason I'd never been interested in sex was because I knew that I had this condition that I didn't know I had and that that was why I had never sought out a penetrative sexual relationship, that I knew it was painful and therefore I was avoiding it, which in hindsight makes no sense at all. As a patient, I was like, oh God, there's something horribly wrong with me. And... The, the treatment, unfortunately, for this is that they send you to an internal physio and they teach you to masturbate, but they also give you a set of um, tubes to insert and to learn to insert, to learn and acclimatise your body to penetration. And that came with this really gross messaging that you cannot have a, a long-term relationship without being able to be sexually active and that many relationships fail at the point where people aren't able to engage in sexual activity and essentially that this was something I had to learn to tolerate and so I was sent home with this homework to learn to masturbate and as an asexual person who'd never really thought about this I was like the, the what now <laughs> you you want me to do what um but because it was layered with this expectation around it being fundamental to my future happiness, it was something that I participated in. And I went religiously for about a year and got to the point where it was something that I could tolerate, even though it was something that internally was causing me this really intense revulsion. And also that I saw masturbation then as a literal sort of like fixing of self-experience that they yeah very much sort of like prescribe this is something that you should do every day that you should get used to that this is something you, that the more you do it the more you want it um, and that will then mean you then want to have a sexual relationship and it wasn't until a couple of years later that I sort of looked back and went oh oh god this is actually incredibly horrifying to me now knowing about my own sexuality and knowing about my revulsion I kind of go well actually if anyone just stopped and gone hang on if you've gotten to 25 without wanting to have sex maybe that's just something you don't want <laughs> why are we pushing this on you but it yeah became 
became something that I then saw as a personal responsibility to fix and something that I saw as, as medically broken about myself. And what's been kind of horrifying is the knowledge that that is gold standard for that condition and that it that most of the, the people involved in that chain had no ill, in, Ill intent, um, that they thought that the messages they were giving out were good ones and that they wholeheartedly saw it as something that they were part of a healing process. And even my levels of distress around it weren't enough for them to question that. And that what I then believed about myself was that I was then not listening to my own body either. Um, so that then meant that I was much more likely to be putting myself in a situation where I was encouraged to engage in something that I actually wasn't wanting because I believed this was part of the healing process. So the second one, I went to my GP. I was incredibly anxious. I'd been on one antidepressant since I was 12. Um, I developed chronic pain at 12. And part of that treatment was they put me on an antidepressant. And be because of the time and because of what they were using it for, it was one of the old tricyclic antidepressants, which we don't really use anymore. And so going to the GP in my late 30s saying, look, I've been on this more than half my life. It's really not working for me anymore. I need someone to help me find another one. And, and being really afraid at that point because I was quite dependent on it emotionally and physically, but also knowing that my anxiety was just off the charts um, and I was not coping. And as part of that discussion with, with my GP peripherally, I mentioned that I'd been working with a Thorn Harbour Health counsellor because I'd, I'd recently come out as ACE and while that was something that I was really excited about and grateful for and was a really positive part of my life I also recognize that coming out has has its own emotional and physical toll and I wanted a chance to speak to someone about that and so they were part of my therapy team at that time dealing with a really specific part of my life and my GP at that point was like don't know what that is and so I came out to him and explained my identity and he initially, his very first response was, no, 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 you've been on antidepressants since before puberty. You can't have developed sexually because these drugs suppress that part of your brain. I'm really worried about you now. I'm, we're going to run all these hormone tests. We're going to check that your gynecological function works properly. This is a really big concern. I'm like, hang on. I've got really bad anxiety, I can't leave the house. <laughs> There's nothing else wrong in my life. I just, I just, I'm really, really anxious. I don't want to do a whole lot of blood tests. I don't want to go see any specialists. All I want is a referral to a psychiatrist who can give me better medication. And, it, and at the time I didn't have language for it, but what I would say now is there is a really distinct difference between sexual attraction, libido and arousal. And he was misunderstanding the concept that I was not becoming physically aroused by anything um, or that my libido was being suppressed, both of which are 
medical, physiological processes which can be influenced by drugs. The other thing that I would say now is, realistically, given I'm coming out to you and saying this is a positive part of my life, even if I did have medically low libido, we don't treat that because I'm saying it's not a problem. But he was still incredibly concerned and against my will and against my knowledge, he referred me for a medication review and included the fact that I had a low libido and that I'd been on these drugs since pre-puberty and that I'd recently come out as asexual, which basically pigeonholed me when I got to this psychiatrist. And I got this psychiatrist who just absolutely refused to in any way acknowledge that asexuality was anything other than what is called in medical terms hyposexual desire disorder. So what we have in the DSM-5 is um, a category of psychiatric illness which refers to having a low libido as a medical or psychiatric disorder that needs to be treated. They have a caveat saying that if you identify as asexual, you should not be diagnosed. But that relies on your therapist, A, believing in asexuality, and B, acknowledging that as your choice. Mine did not. So mine, again, put me through a huge number of unnecessary blood tests and gynecological tests to assess whether or not physiologically I was well. It got to the point where I had to have another person in my life attend all my appointments because it was so antagonistic. But I was so anxious that I couldn't cease treatment with this therapist because I needed the drugs that they were trying to prescribe me. And from both my psychiatrist and my GP, I was being told, now sexuality is fluid. And what we need you to be aware of in taking off these drugs is that it's likely that this will go away. That while you're attached to this label of asexuality, realistically it's, it's part of this biome biomedical process and you need to be open to the option that it, it won't exist. Which is a horrifying thing for them to say when I'm changing medication because I have to. Um, and me trying to say, look, having a higher libido is not going to change my attraction to people. <laughs> I have times when I have a libido, it's just not directed at people. And even as someone who's quite confident in their asexuality, I was just on all sides, really barraged by this message of this is going to go away. And so I changed medication. Unsurprisingly to me, it, it did not change anything <laughs> about my identity. But I had this awful review with my GP where he was openly and actively disappointed that this hadn't made me a sexual being. And I had to go back to him and be like, look, either you need to support this or A, I'm not ever going to come back, but also B, you need to understand that this is actually contravening the incoming laws around medical conversion therapy that I need and expect you to acknowledge and support my identity as I describe it myself, not as you describe it. And 
yeah, again, sort of handing him literature, medical literature, going, this is why I exist. And I was, I was very fortunate that he had not had that intention um, and was horrified of himself that the impact of his beliefs and his actions had had this impact on me. But, yeah, and, and he's become quite supportive of me and of my identity, but it, it was very much something where I was at a huge disadvantage and mainly got out of it because I already knew so much about myself. But, yeah, it's, it's a really big concern for any asexual person visiting a psychiatrist because we know this diagnosis is out there and it can be very, very difficult to argue orientation and um, physiology when you've got someone who, particularly around the effects of antidepressants where they do have an impact on libido, is very, very firm in their belief that biochemically you need to be fixed. And it's, it's very hard to argue with that because they're not... They're not actually interacting with your orientation at all. They're only interacting with their own understanding of human physiology. And you as a layperson will never have any influence on their beliefs around physiology. And, and that was very scary. Being, being a health provider myself, knowing that I was unsafe, knowing that my only option with sort of the extensive wait lists that exist was to stick with someone who could prescribe and, yeah, bring, bring a witness, um, which, which was a fairly terrifying thing that I just hadn't anticipated. Very frequently when you come out as ace, you, you have to kind of run an information session. And I got around that with my family, that I came out by email um, and I also prescribed reading. So I basically started a book club with my family. Did you? That I was like, this is the main text we have. Right. Um, you can go away and read that and I will then answer questions. <laughs> How did that go? Really well, actually. Yeah, my family have been incredibly supportive. But for me, it was also really important at the time that I came out. I was, I was not ready to do all that explaining. I was not ready to try and sort of justify my ex existence. And so I kind of went, you know what? I don't want to see your first reaction. You can have that at the other end of the screen. Um, and I'm really happy for you to have whatever reaction you like. Something I don't have to see. <laughs> what I'm often saying to people who are coming out as ace is someone's first reaction actually often has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with their own beliefs and their own fears. And sometimes you just kind of have to let them have that reaction and go, I'm going to leave this with you. <laughs> I'm going to leave you to think about this. And then I'm going to come back. Because, yeah, there, there will be people who they just can't quite wrap their head around it. Because for them, particularly if they're already in a relationship with them, the idea that you're not sexually attracted to them is really threatening. Um, it it comes as a, a blow to their personal feelings and beliefs um, and, yeah, a, a real fear of 
rejection. And it sometimes takes a little bit of time for it to percolate and go, well, actually, there's all these other things that I'm attracted to for. Your body I really couldn't care less about, but you as a person I adore and, and want to spend all this time with. There's actually a, a meme that um, asexual pirates, we're not after your booty, but, yeah, for, for a lot of asexual people, the, the physical body is, is just kind of something that everyone has. But, yeah, people who, who have, have built whole relationships on that sense of being attracted to a physical body can find that really confronting. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Melbourne and I moved out here. I work in healthcare. So I knew while I was studying that I wanted to work in rural healthcare. I initially moved to Hamilton, which was incredibly confronting. The point where I moved there was when I just found the words for myself and started thinking that maybe this is something I can explore beyond the internet. And then I moved to Hamilton, which unfortunately is still very divided around the way in which they approach anyone who's not straight and anyone who's not white. Mm. And I never really come across homophobia or um, racism on that really in your face level where no one questioned it. And to give you an example of how bad, how openly bad it was, Minus 18 had sent my health team information for young people who might be wanting to transition or might be considering that they're part of the queer community. And there was a team-wide argument about who had it on their desk. Because, ew, I don't want that on my desk. It's like, are we five? Like, ew. But people were treated like it had a disease. And that was seen as an appropriate comment. And so me being like, yeah, it's fine, I'll, I'll have it on my desk. I was immediately, oh, so you must be queer then. And I was like, well, that's actually not the point. We're healthcare providers, we should have this information. And unfortunately, I was there for the six months over the plebiscite. And that really just saw that town become more and more vocal in their opposition. So by the time I left six months later, I, I was well and truly shoved back into, into a closet. And it took me a couple of years to kind of get back to a point where I could even think about coming out because it had been genuinely emotionally and physically dangerous to be out there. And I moved to Ballarat, but I was working in Dalesford. And so I just sort of jumped from one end of the spectrum to the other. I went from very unsafe, very um, antagonistic towards anyone who wasn't straight to a town that is very open and has a, a really wide variety of people living there and, and a wide variety of people who visit. And so for me, yeah, but it still took me a couple of years just to, to really calm down again and get to a point where I felt safe. So yeah, I, I guess I've had that that experience of, of fear for self, but also just that knowledge of what happens when you're surrounded by people who are openly hostile and what that kind of does to your own sense of self.
so yeah, I can't say I would recommend that. Um, but yeah, I I found a beautiful community here in Ballarat. I feel so supported to be open in myself, um, and that's been wonderful. Mm. And we've relatively recently started an asexual spectrum community group in Ballarat. There's about 20 of us, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's that opportunity to share and a number of people have kind of come to events and said, this is so relaxing. I'm not mm. trying to be something. I'm I'm not thinking about anything. We don't even have to discuss these things and I just feel relaxed. Um, and that's been really lovely mm. because we've found this common shared experience of really heavy masking around people who are always talking about relationships or talking about people they're attracted to and and that performance aspect of either pretending to know what's going on or pretending to experience that. A lot of adolescent aces will tell you that they kind of picked people to have crushes on because they felt like they had to. Um, they're kind of like, that one will do. <laughs> Me sort of being really open and kind of bringing in a group of people who were kind of like, oh, actually, I feel like I might fit here somewhere. And that kind of encouraged us to set up a couple of events and and give people a chance to kind of poke and prod at the label and see if it fit them somehow, which I think is, is so important. I want people to, yeah, have that opportunity to pick up a label and give it a bit of a shake and put it down and see what they think. Because I think... Yeah, we. it's easy sometimes to think you've got to kind of have it all figured out before you talk about it. But I think there's something really beautiful in in the process of, yeah, pick up a couple, give them, toss them up in the air, see what, see what happens. Because you don't, you don't have to figure that out in isolation. One of the beautiful things about community sometimes is that you can kind of come, come just with your experiences and go, well, I don't know where I fit. Um, and yeah, learn, learn from the people around you. How has it changed your life to find community? I think it settles a part of me that worries about that classic thing of, of being alone. Um, and I think one of the lovely parts about being part of community is that sense of knowing where you fit and having that that validation and that support, I think for me having having an asexual community is also something that is grounding in the sense that we, we live in a highly sexualised world mm. um, and sometimes it's really beautiful to be able to come back and be like, I had a weird experience. None of my other friends are going to understand, but I had a really weird experience. <laughs> And all your race friends are, oh, yeah, <laughs> yep, that, 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 that checks out. Mm -hmm. um, and just that, that space where you're understood in the minimum number of words. Um, and I think there's something really lovely mm. about that. Yeah, feeling understood and, yeah, mm. oh. and seen. Kind yeah. Of, yeah, I see you. Mm. What do you think regional places or, or society, I guess, what, mm. what do we need to do to change places like Hamilton? I mean, if, if Ballarat's looking, you know, it's it's come ahead in leaps and bounds by the sounds yeah. of things. 
there are still places that aren't and I think I think a huge part of it is education Hamilton was the first place where I ever met people who were afraid of queer people I I think in many ways we we use we misuse the term homophobia but I while I was there I met people who were who felt threatened by the existence of queer people and and didn't know how to deal with that and overwhelmingly their reaction was verbal or physical violence and yeah I I looked at particularly my colleagues in healthcare and really wanted them to have the opportunity to sit down and actually question those beliefs not to dismiss the beliefs they have because I think people develop beliefs for a reason and I think in in places where it's that entrenched you actually need to have a safe place to question that where is this coming from what are you afraid of particularly like to to put that in context I when I said to some of the people I was working with that I was moving to Dalesford they were genuinely warning me about predatory lesbians and and believed that I was at risk of sexual assault and for a number of them it was not a joking comment for them it was was something they they held as a belief and had I not been so keen to get out for my own well-being I would have loved to know where that came from because I think I think ignorance is not necessarily something that we can combat just with education I think often you need a space to actually interrogate that belief. Because if someone says, no, you now can't say that, you tend to get really defensive. If someone sits down next to you and says, well, why? <laughs> Sometimes you can actually get to the bottom of it and, and dispel that fear in them or that whatever experience they've had that's driven them there. And I think... Also, it's about having an opportunity to see queer people of all ages just existing. Because I think the other thing that I saw in that town was that they only kind of saw the Pride Parade kind of queer. And again, that made me sad because that is a point where we are celebrating and that's often not our day-to-day lives. And I think their empathy is not really at that point. I think any group of people you see celebrating, you don't form any kind of bond with because they're in their own element, they're in their own community and and they're focused inwards. Whereas I think I've, yeah, I look at, um, there's a beautiful project in Ballarat where someone built a dementia walk. Um, She and her female partner, went on a journey to, to look at the way in which dementia affects our senses and our memory and, and built this beautiful walk. And the fact that they are two women who love each other is so secondary in many ways to that story. But I feel like in Hamilton, that's the kind of story they need. They need to see people of all ages, people of all stages, having these life experience where they're just trying to get by trying to live their life the way everyone else does 
because yeah, I, I think we we build empathy by seeing ourselves in other people, or we're seeing someone we love in other people. It's that relatability, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. And I think I think if you live somewhere that's very conservative, and you live somewhere that everyone is judging everyone else on what they wear, you look at something like a pride parade, and you're like, I can't see anyone that could walk around in my town. What does pride mean to you? Pride to me is to be able to sit in your own body and in your own self without question. To know who you are, even if that's a fluid thing, and feel within yourself and within your community supported to explore that. I think for me, pride has always been a quiet and internal thing, that finding that confidence in myself took time. But once I had that confidence in myself, I could take that and share that. But I think while while I was still internally in conflict, it was really hard to to find pride in in my label or even in engaging in my community. Because even when I was there, I was not quite self-sabotaging, but but questioning myself. Um, and I think there's a really beautiful point that a lot of people come to where they they find that confidence of self. And I think that's to me, pride is is that beautiful point of self-confidence and yeah, willingness to allow yourself to to grow and, and flourish in whatever that looks like. What would you say to your teenager self? We're going to get there. It is going to make sense at some point. But I think more than anything, I would say to my teenage self, sex is something that should only be gone into where both parties are not just consenting, but enthusiastically exploring together. And until you reach a point where that feels right and feels good, you can just duck, dodge and weave. There doesn't, there is no milestone that says you're an adult once you become sexually active and you're not lesser for, for avoiding that. Yeah, there's a lot of messaging in, in society around sexual maturity and adulthood, uh, romantic and sexual relationships in adulthood. And I think for, for my teenage self, it's just going, well, if you don't understand it, then avoid like the plague. Those aren't experiences that are going to make you feel good. Mm, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thanks so much oh, for sharing. You're very welcome. Wow, that's amazing. This podcast is released every Tuesday and Friday and could not have been possible without the support of our local community partners, Midsummer and the Fair of Victoria portfolio of the Victorian State Government. Throughout the series, you will hear firsthand the successes, hopes, dreams, fears and struggles of diverse members of our community. Pride Finder, the Rainbow Road Trip was a travelling project commissioned during the 2023 Midsummer Festival as part of the State Government's initiative, Victoria's Pride. 
Helen Thomas, an award-winning creative audio producer, journalist, and queer ally, developed a mobile story studio with the purpose of encouraging connection, cultivating empathy, and preserving people's experiences. As much of Victoria's queer history relies on verbal recount, Midsummer, Helen and the Pride Finder connected with regionally living LGBTQIA plus Victorians to help capture their unique stories. These conversations are frank, honest and reflect the language, thoughts, history and opinions of the individual. Views may not be shared by Midsummer or the Victorian State Government. Please keep yourself safe and refer to the show notes for specific triggers related to each episode. If something in this podcast has made you feel uncomfortable or brought up challenging feelings, please seek support from a loved one or from one of the helplines listed at the bottom of the show notes. 